Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you all this morning. As we continue to worship together, why don't we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, as we continue in the book of Deuteronomy, um, over the next couple weeks, uh, we're going to put a little pause button on it while we go through uh, the Advent season. But for now, we will um, today and, and next week, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 5, looking at the Ten Commandments. Probably uh, for most of you, uh, or a lot of you, Probably the most familiar part of the book of Deuteronomy. It's also recounted in the book of Exodus as well. Um, so we'll be looking at the Ten Commandments today and next Sunday. So we invite you to, to tune in and hone in on that today. Um, I just want to say if you are here and you are not a Christian, we're glad that you are here as we are going through the book of Deuteronomy. What we are hoping to see is how the Old Testament points us to Jesus and how uh, God's word and the scriptures uh, reveals a lot about his good character, his goodness to his people. Uh, so we, we see the Bible here as God's word, um, not just a rule book of how to live better, to do better and try harder, but rather to reveal something about the person of our Lord uh, and ultimately through Jesus and, and show us how a reliance and faith in Christ uh, gives us um, a relationship with God the Father and a right relationship with each other. So uh, if you're a guest here today, we're glad you're here. Uh, and as we continue to worship uh, through Deuteronomy, uh, through the scriptures today, we'll be looking at Deuteronomy uh, 5, um, first couple verses there. So uh, the Ten Commandments um, can be described uh, often uh, vertically and horizontally. Some of the commandments have to do with our relationship with God. Uh, some of the commandments have to do with our relationship with each other. Um, so this week we're looking kind of at the vertical aspect, our relationship with God, and next week we'll look at uh, the horizontal relationship. But it all fits together in what it means to uh, live in a right relationship with God and others having a new identity, a new community uh, together in Christ. Um, there's a couple common misconceptions about the Ten Commandments, and maybe you've brought them with you today. Uh, sometimes we can look at the Ten Commandments and think, well, uh, it's irrelevant because they're thousands of years old, and it's, it's Old Testament stuff, so if you're a Christian, you just don't really have to look at this, uh, so let's just forget about it. You know, we look at it, it's cool, but it's Old Testament stuff, so uh, it doesn't really apply to us now in the, you know, uh, being Christians. That's one, one misconception some folks have. Uh, other folks will approach the Ten Commandments uh, more as a way of like, you know what, we, we have to do this in order to have a right relationship with God. Like if we we have to do these ten things and not do the things that says not to do. We, we have to adhere to these commandments uh, in order to have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. So um, those are two common misconceptions uh, because Scripture is full of more than just ten commandments. There are several hundred commandments, actually, and the ten commandments fit in that picture, not only uh, for us to say, okay, it's irrelevant because it was before Jesus, or um, we have to do all these things, and if we do them perfectly, we'll be right with God. Uh, but rather, what I want us to do is to approach it uh, Christologically, meaning let's look at this through the lens of Jesus. Like, how, how did Jesus view the commandments? How did the commandments point us to Jesus? And how do you and I, as believers in Christ, uh, how does this apply to us today? Because it does. The Old Testament is, is, is for us, uh, for our understanding today as well. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus held the commandments in high regard. In fact, he says, I've not come to abolish them, uh, but to fulfill them. But here's where the key is for you and I today. Because I'm hoping you're here today saying, look, I want to live in righteousness, right? I want to be part of the kingdom of God. I want to, want to live rightly, righteous, and in his kingdom. Uh, but here's what it comes down to. It's a question of, of motivation, right? Are you, are you wanting to uh, live righteously to get into his kingdom based on your own doing and your own strength? Is it based on pride? Is it based on, on fear? I want to do these things so I don't go to hell? Uh, I submit to you, if we're going to look at the commandments and all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus, we need to see that how Jesus fulfills what we cannot fulfill in our own strength. And what that does for us is it gives us great, great trust and faith in Jesus who did for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that we can live differently having a new identity and a new relationship. So that's where we're going today as we look at the Ten Commandments because they are important. They point us to Christ and we will see uh, in the next few minutes how Jesus fulfills these things for us so that we can live lives right with God and each other. Uh, so let me pray. Father God in heaven, we do thank you, um, God, as we continue to worship this morning, as we do through singing, through prayer, and now through the reading of your word. God, I pray uh, that your spirit would uh, open our minds to understand, open our hearts to receive the good news of Christ. Uh, Lord, I, I do pray that you would give us understanding um, as we approach your scriptures, God, we do so humbly, uh, not flippantly. God, we know that this is your word that you uh, inspired to be written down. You have preserved for generations for our benefit today. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us see how this points to Christ and how we are to live in light of that good news. So, so Lord, we give you this time and pray you use it in the way that best glorifies you, that best brings us joy in Christ, and also best forwards the good news of Jesus from this place out to the nations. We ask in his name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules I am speaking, I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who, who are all here who all of us are here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, or your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is God's word. Friends, Jesus reorients our affection and attention back to God. And this good news changes how we live. I want to start by asking you today, uh, where do you find your ultimate rest? I mean, when I just say rest, what comes to mind? You may be thinking like a hammock in your backyard or going fishing or uh, maybe something broader like I find rest when my bank account has a certain number of dollars in it, right? Or I find rest when I have my checklist of things done and I don't have to think about my tasks before me. Maybe you think you find rest in, in certain relationships, like, you know, when things are going well in my marriage or with my family or with my friends, I can, I can rest knowing that things are well. Maybe rest for you is when you complete a degree in school or a certification at your job, or maybe you have some milestone with your children, or maybe it's something in the neighborhood. What is it that to you is prompting every motivation in your life to reach toward that, that rest, that goal. I think most of us like to rest, right? Like often we're like, you know, I need to, to work a lot to save a lot of money so I can take a vacation, a trip, and just kind of chill. Hey, it's a good thing. I'm not knocking on it. It's a very good thing. But here's what I want us to do. Because sometimes we find rest not only physically, uh, but mentally, like an understanding that, you know, if I have X amount of dollars in the bank, if I have this goal at work, if I have this house, if I have this degree, if I have this relationship, if I have these things, then I can finally rest. And we base our whole lives pursuing those things. It prompts everything we do because we find our ultimate identity in maybe the neighborhood in which we live or the relationship we have or the title we have at work or the degree we have or whatever. All of these are very good things. They're not bad things. Don't throw them all the way. But rather, let's see how Jesus reorients them and rather reorients us back to God. Because often, whatever it is we find our ultimate rest and comfort in becomes an idol for us. Because if we can grasp that thing or whatever it may be, we find that, that we can finally rest and find our fulfillment, right? And so it prompts everything we do, all of our motivations. It becomes, as it were, a functional center of your life. And if that functional center is not God, then it's an idol, right? I mean, Old Testament, we think of people like bowing down to statues or, or maybe you think of like Indiana Jones or Kaliba, you know, that kind of stuff. You think of idols that way. But idols are more than just like things, but it's an attitude of your heart's affection and your mind's attention. 
And so whatever the functional center is in your life, it becomes an idol for you unless that functional center is the Lord and you become like what you worship. You base your life around something long enough and you'll start becoming like that thing or that idea, whatever it is you think you will find rest in or fulfillment in. And here is the bad news, is we all have something. All of us have something that takes our attention and affection from God and takes our prime attention and affection and motivation to pursue it. Often, they are good things. Often, they are very good things. Most often, they are things that God places in our lives for, to bless us, to bring us joy, but we make them ultimate things, and therefore, they become idols for us. So what is it for you? I have a pretty good list in my head. In fact, I'll just tell you, over the years, it it, it comes and goes. Sometimes I think a certain amount of money or a certain title or a certain... I love school. I'm a nerd. I've gone to school several times and gotten all kinds of degrees. It's an idol for me, and so I have to kind of sit back and say, no, I'm not going to pursue that degree because I need to just do some heart work. Nobody wants a, a Ph.D. pastor that's a jerk, do you? If you'd, I'd love to go to school, if you got, but I don't want to be a jerk. God's still doing some heart work there, right? So what is it for you? So the bad news is we all have something, but the good news in Christ we are reoriented to God, and, and, and the Lord, by his providence, is actually paving the way in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, through the story of Israel, to point us to Jesus so that we can see how Jesus reorients us to God, right? So let's get back to the Ten Commandments here. I want us to see that the Ten Commandments in this context is first and foremost based on the covenant relationship with God, right? There are four commandments we're looking at today about uh, the first four, to have no other gods, to make no graven image, uh, to do not use the Lord's name in vain, and fourthly, to observe the Sabbath. We're going to look at those four, but first we have to see that the Ten Commandments are based first and foremost on the covenant relationship with God. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen um, how a covenant relationship is, is, is a unique relationship. It's not a business contract, but it's, a, it's an intimate relationship that the Lord institutes for his people. The closest thing we have on earth is a marriage covenant. And so we see in verse 1 and 2, it says this, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, it's the name of God's people that the Lord gave them, say, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak to you in your hearing today, and you shall learn them. Be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us. Right, The Lord, that's, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. The Lord our God made a covenant with us, not with Our fathers, did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, all of us who are alive here today. Then down in verse 6, God says, I am the Lord your God. So the Ten Commandments are based first and foremost not on Israel's failings, not on the failings of humanity, not on their, it's not based on their idols or their brokenness or or their needs or their wants or any of that. It's based first and foremost on God's covenant relationship with them. And it's like a marriage. If you're married, you know that the terms of your covenant relationship with your spouse are, are different than any other relationship you have. So you look at the Ten Commandments today, it's not a list of to-dos and to-don'ts to get into God's good favors. Rather, this is how God's people are to live because of this new relationship, because of this new identity. Once you are married, you do not act the same way you did as a single person. Right? You relate to your spouse uniquely because of that marriage covenant. In the same way, you relate to others differently. 
Gentlemen, your friendship with women should look different once you become a husband of one wife. Women, your relationship with other men should look different once you become the wife of one husband. And the relationship you have with your spouse is unique. Why? Because the covenant defines the unique, intimate terms of the relationship. Right? In the same way, the Lord is saying, look, I am the Lord your God. I made a covenant with you, my people Israel. So the Ten Commandments are, are not a rule, a set of rules of to-dos and to-don'ts for relationship, but rather it's the terms of what the relationship looks like because of God's goodness to his people. It says, look, it's like marriage. Our relationship looks different, and here's what it looks like. The first thing, the first commandment we see is in verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? The context of the day, there were all kind of neat religions. In fact, if you want to listen, I can give you some books if you're interested in this that, that I've read on, on ancient Near East culture to see uh, what, what kind of cultural and religious practices were abroad in the day. They had been in Egypt for a couple generations, so having been set free, they're bringing with them some cultural baggage from Egypt, and God is saying, hey, look, you're my people. We have a unique relationship, and things are going to look different. So you, you can't have a bunch of other gods. I'm not one of many gods that you can worship. I'm not one of many gods that you can relate to. I am the Lord your God, period. One God. I am the only God. There's no a polytheistic okayness. Right? You can't just incorporate whatever and see how uh, it all fits together, but rather, I am the Lord, your God. That's a huge statement. There's a reason that's the first thing there. So God says, hey, look, this is based on a covenant relationship I have instituted with you. And the first commandment is this, you shall have no other gods before me. Gentlemen, is it okay if you are married for your wife to come up to you and say, hey, look, uh, I am your wife, there better not be any other ladies. That's fair, right? That's probably good practice, don't you think? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's okay for the husband to look at the wife and say, hey, look, I'm your guy, uh, so, so no other dudes, cool. That's what covenant relationship looks like. It's totally within God's prerogative to say, hey, look, there's no other God but me, and you have no other gods before me. And this applies to you and I today because it's easy for us, you know, to be kind to other people and to be politically correct and to try to be warm and accepting. And I've heard this time and time again that, oh, all waves lead to the same shore. You ever heard that? Or all roads lead to the same destination. Hey, Jesus may be a way, but is he the way? I mean, is it, is, how come you can't maybe have this religious practice here and this philosophical framework here and this cultural practice? Don't they all at the end of the day just point us to be good people? Right? No, they don't. That's not okay. God says, look, in a covenant relationship, I am the one and only God for you. And so for you and I today, we can look at religious and philosophical and cultural things, but at the end of the day, it comes back to little gods that emerge in our lives, right? Whatever it is you think has ultimate control in your life, whether it be money, whether it be yourself, you think, oh, that's usually what it comes down to. It's like, hey, I am in charge here. I'm in control of my own destiny. I determine who I live with and how I live my life and what I pursue. It's all about me. I can make my decisions. That means you've made yourself a little God. You have put your place in the place of God Almighty, and that is breaking the first commandment, and we've all done it, and we all do it routinely. That's some bad news. There's good news coming. Hang with me. 
We're going to hit some more bad news first, though. Let's get all the bad. You want to do that? Let's get all the bad news in there, and then we'll blow it up with the gospel, because that's the best part. Boom. And then I'll drop the mic, and we'll go home. First, have no other gods before me. Second, verses 8, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Wow. First glance, you're like, man, I've never carved anything and bowed down and served anything. Oh? Maybe you have not chiseled away some interesting-looking statue that you, like, prostrate yourself before, but how often do you posture your heart's affection towards something else or your mind's attention towards something else? How often do you scramble to get the funds together to do this thing while forgetting that you are a steward of God's gifts towards something else? How often do you use your energy or your relational leverage for personal gain or for uh, stroking your ego while at the same time neglecting a conversation of like the real point of our existence to honor the Lord and to serve one another, to point others to Jesus. I'm guilty as charged, y'all. I've broken this commandment very recently. Right, idols in our context, functional sinners look different. They may not be statues, they may not be tangible things, it can be an attitude of the heart. It's where we, uh, you know, it's where we give our attention and our affection. So, so what is it that you are serving? I mean, what is it that you have built up in your mind to be like the ultimate thing of existence? Like I said, it could be a good thing. As a single guy, about 15 years ago, I idolized marriage. It's because I was lonely. I was insecure. I thought that some woman could complete me. My wife compliments me by God's grace, and I compliment her. It's biblical. But we together find our ultimate fulfillment in Christ because I drop the ball as a husband sometimes. right? I idolized marriage. It's very common. It's not a bad thing. Right. I've idolized having a position, I've idolized having a title, I've idolized having a degree, I've idolized this, that, and the other. And it came to my attention, like John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. Congratulations! You're an expert. I am an expert in inventing idols. We are experts in finding something to put in the place of God. And it occurred to me that you can't have your cake and eat it too because it's not your cake to begin with, and the fact that you get to taste it is by the grace of God. So what is it for you that has become an idol, right? First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second one, you shall not make for yourself an image. What does that look like in your life? What are you putting in the place of the Lord your God? And what is it looking? How is it distracting your attention and affection? Thirdly, verse 11 You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is very complicated. I used to think this means just don't cuss. I wish it were that simple. (laughs) It would be very easy for us to make up a new word to say instead of a curse word here. That would be so easy. This is a complicated one. 
You see, if you look at what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, that has to do with language of oaths and blessings and curses. It means that somebody's name was associated with their identity and that to evoke somebody's name was to call out their identity and use all of their identity and power and what they bring to the table for something. So, so to say that, so for me to say, hey, that, that the Lord is blessing you, that is saying, look at all of God's character associated with his name, and that same God will, will bless you in Christ. But for me to evoke the name of the Lord for something different that is not biblical or gospel-centered is using the Lord's name in vain. It, it, it is more than just saying a bad word, but it is actually evoking, um, it, is, it is taking control of uh, God's blessings and trying to use them for your own good. It's, it's evoking the name of It would be like a false prophet standing before you saying, I speak on behalf of the Lord, now go do this. And something very sinister and twisted, just you can see it in the news constantly. Right? It's vain to evoke the name of the Lord for your own purposes to serve whatever God, idol, or functional center is in your life. It is so much more complicated. One way I think this is done is for Christians to call out, we have liberty in Christ, and just use that for selfish indulgence. I think that is associated with using the Lord's name in vain to say, hey, I'm saved by grace. I can go do this. I'm saved by grace. I can go sleep with her or him or them. I'm saved by grace. I can smoke that or drink all of that or shoot that up. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to be generous. I don't have to be kind. I don't have to uh, love one another or pray for one another. I don't have to gather and worship the Lord. I don't have to do those things. I'm saved by grace. I think that is associated with using the Lord's name in vain. Because we are saying, we are evoking the grace of God and his goodness. We are calling that out of his identity and character and placing that on ourselves, but then using it for our own selfish gain. You with me? Wouldn't it be easy just to say, don't cuss? I've seen Ten Commandments teaching like that. We're like, hey, no carved idols. That means don't bow down to statues. Really? So much more than that. Uh, Don't use the Lord's name in vain. That means don't put his first name before the D word. Really? It's so much more than that. So what does this look like for you? It stems from pride. It stems from self-reliance. It stems from selfish motivations. I've been there more than I've cursed. And I've cursed a lot. They're all tied together. Have no other gods before me. Have no idols before me. Do not use my name in vain. Why? Because whatever our God is, is our functional center, our idol is what that looks like and what we serve. Using the Lord's name in vain is taking the blessings of the Lord and using them for our selfish gain and not for his kingdom purposes. Fourthly, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. See, God is so patient and kind. I mean, all of these, he starts by saying, I am the Lord your God. I made a covenant with you. End of story. There doesn't need to be an exposition of why. It's just like, obey my commandments because I'm the Lord your God. But then God is so nice and says, observe the Sabbath day 
And let me explain why. And then he goes on and explains it because he's just nice and a loving father. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This comes back to creation, by the way. So read Genesis 1 and 2. The Sabbath day, he says observe the Sabbath day. That word means to watch it, to guard it, to cling to it. This gets back to the issue of rest. I asked you earlier to think about where you find your ultimate rest because that's where, that's, that will be your functional center in your life and that everything you do will either be an idol to fuel that or a motivation to do that. And to use the Lord's name in vain means to take his blessings and his good character for you to, to use to get to whatever your functional center is, wherever you find your rest. This is why Sabbath is important. God says you're to observe it, to watch it, to guard it, to cling to it. Here's what the Sabbath is. It's a time of rest and remembrance. Do you see that? Because he says here in verse 13 and 14, he's like, hey, look, you're going to work six days, the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work on it. None of your family, your servants, not even your animals. Don't make your animals work on the Sabbath, y'all. You shall remember, in verse 15, that you were a slave So what happens with Sabbath is it's not just prop your feet up and chill. It is an active thing that you do. It's not passive. It's not, I mean, the Lord says don't do work, but he also says, but I want you to rest. I want you to remember who I am and what I've done for you. It's an active doing. It's that you actively watch, you actively guard, you actively cling to, you actively, can't say, you actively observe the Sabbath. It's something that you do. You do rest. You do remembrance. It's based on God's work, who he is and what he's done. The Hebrew calendar was on the seventh day, Saturday. In Christ, we do have freedom with this one. It's a common question I hear from people. It's like, what what does Sabbath look like for you and I? In Christ, we do have freedom. It doesn't have to be the seventh day, Saturday, Hebrew calendar. Uh, It can be traditionally, and became the first day, Sunday, for Christians in the early church. But what it looks like for us is to incorporate rhythms of rest and remembrance that are both personal and corporate together. It's a time for us to rest in the finished work of Christ that God has done on our behalf in Jesus. It's for us to, to sit down and say, okay, I'm not going to strive for these things. I'm going to actively rest by remembering who God is and what he's done. If you are resting without remembering, you're not Sabbathing. You're just chilling. And that's cool too. But if you want to Sabbath, it means to rest in who God is and what he's done. It means to remember who he is and what he's done. That's why the Lord instructs his people to do that. Are you guys busy? I'm busy. I'm incredibly busy. I, can, I have the hardest time calming down. It is probably harder for me to actually relax than it is for me to not relax. That doesn't make sense. It's hard for me to chill. It's hard for me to sit down and disengage my brain from a task or something. And you might think, oh, man, you're a pastor. You get to study the Bible for a living. Oh, my friends, it's really easy for me to get task mode with the Bible. (laughs) You know how hard it is for me to say I'm not planning a sermon. I'm not planning a talk. I'm not going to read a commentary. I'm going to take the Scriptures and go for a walk and just let the Lord chop my heart up for a bit. That's hard for me. That's something you can pray for me about if you want. Even if you don't, you should want to do that. Encourage me in that way. 
Observing the Sabbath is something active that you do to rest in the work of the Lord on your behalf, to remember who He is and what He's done. I'm often asked, is that a specific day for the Christian? I would say this. Uh, in our culture, it's extremely difficult to carve out one standard day for our entire culture. Hebrew culture had a rhythm set up where Saturday was the Sabbath day. Boom. Our culture doesn't allow for that luxury. Okay, some of you guys work on Sundays. Sunday in the early church became, it was the first day, it became a day of rest, meaning, hey, let's get together, let's rest in the work of Christ and remember who he is and what he's done. Some of you guys work on Saturdays and Sundays. You're not able to, you know, rest and remember the Lord. But I would say this, make, make a day, pick a day. So this is a day that I'm going to not pursue financial gain, I mean, sure, I could pick up an extra shift. Don't pick up a shift one day a week and say, I'm going to take one day off. I'm going to spend it with my family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, maybe do some relaxing yard. I don't think it's bad to do yard work on a day, on a day of rest uh, because I, I love yard work. That helps me get my mind off of stuff, and I can actually like, worship the Lord while I'm raking leaves. Um, but I don't want to worship the Lord at your house, so don't call me to help you rake your leaves. <laughs> I want to worship the Lord at my house with my kids. All of you are like, hey, we'll help you with that Sabbath thing, Jeremy. Have you seen our yard? Come over and have a Sabbath. I'm sorry. Me and my big mouth. So what does it look like for you? What is, it, what is a day off? I mean, I can tell you it's, it's, um, I sometimes get, um, it's hard because we can always find something else to do to get ahead. It's really easy to say, hey, look, if I, but if I don't take a day off, I can do one more thing at work and make a little more money, or I can study a little harder and maybe go a little further in my school, or I can do this house project, uh, which could be relaxing, but it may not be, and you can you know, get ahead in this, and it's really, really hard to take a step back and say, you know what, the Lord said it's for his glory and for my good to have a day of rest and remembrance, and to step back. And, and let me tell you, this is really cool. If you have kids, you can get so creative with this, because it, is very, it can be restful um, as possible with children to say, hey, let's go to the zoo. Like, it's a great thing to do. And while you're there, talk about how magnificent the Lord is that he would make such bizarre creatures. You know what I mean? Like, have you seen a giraffe? What in the world? The Lord's amazing, right? And so there's much rest and remembrance that can happen as you go. It's a fluid thing. It doesn't mean... Um, and, and you could, I think, like I said, we have creativity. We can be creative uh, because we have liberty in Christ with how you do this. Um, I mean, for some folks, I know they say, hey, we're not doing anything with media on one day a week. That's, that's cool, man. Um, I, yeah, the scripture doesn't really tell us how to do it as Christians, but it does say we are to do it. So I think we have some creativity. If that means one day a week you turn off uh, your computer and you don't watch TV, if that helps you get your, your mind and heart Godward, man, do it. That's beautiful. Man, that, that, that can be very helpful. Um, and so uh, Sabbath is, is more than just a, a one day a week calendar. It's a rhythm of rest. It's something you do personally. It's something you do with your family. It's something you do corporately. Um, Hebrew culture was able to do it one day a week, which was awesome. Corporately, we don't have that luxury to do it corporately one day a week in the same way. Uh, but the Spirit uh, is there from the Lord. So I, I want to ask you, what does rest look like for you? And then how do you reflect on who God is and what he's done? So those are the, the first four commandments. Now, quickly, I want to show us how Jesus really solidifies this for us. So, you know, the first commandment, you have no other gods before me. Second, no graven images. Third, 
Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Fourth, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Here's quickly, and I, and I know this is hard. Let me just say, Ten Commandments, we could spend months here. I wish we could. Uh, my hope and prayer, my goal for this whole series is to, is to paint with a broad enough brush and to give a big enough overview that we can corporately kind of get our heads around how this is pointing us to Jesus. But I hope and pray you spend time studying this on your own. And we have, we have questions in the bulletin that are meant to kind of get you thinking and, and applying it. So I'm praying and hoping that you'll do that and that um, and you'll discuss it with other believers and really spend some more intense time to study because 40 minutes on a Sunday was impossible to do. I just needed to say that. But I want us to see how Christ reframes this for us. Okay? Uh, first, the first commandment is... Uh, you know, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay? Jesus fulfills that by revealing to us the one true God. John 10:30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. 1 Corinthians 8:6, Paul says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So Jesus himself and John, and then the Apostle Paul is writing, hey, God the Father, Jesus are one. All right, so Jesus Christ reveals for us the one true God. So to have no other gods before me means we look to Jesus because he reveals the one true God. There's no ethereal, nebulous thing we have to decipher and figure out. You know what I mean? It's not like, well, you've heard the, yeah, I mean, you've heard the thing about the elephant, right? Like, you know, a bunch of dudes are like hugging different parts of the elephant. Like, you know, the Buddhist is like, hey, God's a tail. And the other guy's like, no, God's a leg. Have you heard that? Look it up. I don't know. It's a bad analogy of, of how all religions lead to the same elephant. God's not an elephant, so it's a dumb analogy. So getting back to this, <laughs> Jesus reveals for us the one true God. So if you want to have no other gods before God, you want to do the first commandment, look to Jesus, because he reveals the one true God. Secondly, Jesus saves us from sin and from idols because the second commandment uh, says you shall have no other or you shall have no other gods before me is the first. The second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. That means hey, you look to the one true God. Don't ever put anything in place of the one true God, whether that be something tangible like a like a beach house or money or whether that be something like you know your status or whatever. Don't ever do that. Right, but this is how Jesus does. Jesus saves us from sin and he saves us from idols. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. In, in Hebrews 10:16, the writer of Hebrews is quoting the prophet Jeremiah from a few hundred years before Christ that's pointing to Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, look at this. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You see, so Jesus comes revealing the one true God, fulfilling what the prophet Jeremiah wrote down from God, saying, hey, look, a time's coming that I'm not going to just uh, give the law and instruction out there for them to, to try to figure out, but rather they, it's going to be written on their hearts and on their minds. That happens because in Christ we are a new creation. We are a new identity. Jesus lived the perfect life we should live but can't. He fulfilled every law of the covenant, never broke it, ever. He did that on our behalf and gave us his righteousness. That's good news, man. But because of that, we look to him to reveal the one true God. We look to him to save us from idols. What does that look like, man? 
I mean, when you're struggling with porn, when you're struggling with selfishness, when you're struggling with direction for your life, when, when you're struggling with relational fulfillment and desires that become just overwhelming, do you look to Christ? He saves you from those idols. He saves you from that sin. God says that in Christ He is writing His laws on your hearts and on your minds. Do we trust that? Do we believe it? Thirdly, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That means to, to evoke the name and character and power of God for your own selfish gain, building your own kingdom with God's grace, not a good thing. Jesus aligns us with God's kingdom purposes. Second Peter 1.11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's one of many verses about the kingdom that, that Jesus speaks about, or that speak about Jesus and the kingdom. Um, you can just look that up on, in your Bible, see how Jesus talks about his coming kingdom. So to use the Lord's name in vain means to evoke God's power for your own kingdom purposes, not his kingdom purposes. Jesus aligns us to God's kingdom purposes, as Second Peter 1.11 tells us. Finally, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Friends, you can have a day of rest and not remember the Lord. <laughs> you have a day off and not rest and not remember and not be Sabbathing. doesn't do any good. right? It's not just because you have a day off just means you have a day off. It doesn't mean you're Sabbathing. But here's what I want us to see, because Sabbath means to have active rest and remembrance and who God is and what he's done for us. How do we do that? How do we rest and remember who God is and what he's done for us? Man, these are great verses. Mark 2.27. Some religious guys who kept the Sabbath very, very well. They didn't know Jesus as Lord. <laughs> they kept the Sabbath, man. They get on to Jesus about like doing healing on the Sabbath and feeding people. It's like, you're not supposed to heal and feed people on the Sabbath. You need to rest and remember the work of the Lord. He says this to them. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. That's Jesus saying, hey, look, this is the point to me. <laughs> the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists so that you would know who I am. That's why the Sabbath exists. Jesus was healing people and teaching people and feeding people on a day that was meant for rest and remembrance. Why was he allowed to do that when the religious guy said, hey, we're not doing that because we're, we're resting and remembering the Lord because Jesus is the Lord that the Sabbath points to. He's saying, look, I'm feeding you, rest in me. I'm healing you, rest in me. I'm teaching, rest in me. In fact, Matthew 11:28, Jesus says this, man, commit this verse to memory and cling to it constantly when you are restless. This is the greatest, such a great promise from the Lord. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. You can rest all you want one day a week, but if there's no Jesus in it, it's not a Sabbath, and you're missing the point of the Sabbath. It's to point you to Christ in whom you have rest. All that to say, in closing... What is the functional center of your life that you are pursuing to find ultimate rest and fulfillment? And if it's not the Lord, then it's, a, it's an idol, it's a false god. And you are doing things to call the power of God to serve your own kingdom. I want to call you to repentance, call myself to repentance. 
The Lord is gracious. Jesus says, come to him if you are burdened, weary. And I want us to do that. One time, of course, to become a believer, but ongoingly as a believer to just press into the rest that is ours in Christ. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you uh, to come and know the Lord Jesus who reveals to us who God is, who rescues us from sin and idols, who uh, reorients us back to God for his kingdom purposes, and who ultimately gives us rest. That's how the Ten Commandments point us to Jesus. And if you are a believer, I want uh, you to uh, join me in repenting of uh, the false idols that creep into our lives and the way we use the grace of God for our own selfish gain rather than for his kingdom purposes. And likewise, I want to invite you with me to not rest in how good we know the Bible, not rest in how good we do biblical things, but rather rest in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's, that's what Sabbath is. So I want to invite you into that. Uh, let me pray. Father God in heaven, you're really good to us. And God, your scriptures are, uh, are thick and dense and sometimes difficult. But Lord, we trust that you are bringing to our minds' attention what you want us to know and pressing into our hearts what you want us to believe. God, I, I pray that as we uh, think about the Ten Commandments, as we think about your scriptures in Deuteronomy, Lord, please help us see how they point us to Jesus. God, as we read the Gospels, may we see how your son Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets, as he said. God, how he did everything required of the law and how he revealed your goodness to your people, not only Israel, but to us as Gentiles generations later. So I pray that you would stir up our hearts uh, to repent of sin, to repent of idols, and to cling to Christ in whom we find rest, through whom we ultimately know you and know how to live. God, we ask that you do this for your glory, our joy, and that the gospel advance in Christ's name. Amen.